Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where from beginning to end, it is just Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Good morning, Saltbox. I am glad to be here with you this morning, and I'm glad that you are here with us. We are back into our Acts series. We are in Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to look at the very end of Acts chapter 2. So Peter has preached um, his magnificent sermon, the first sermon, and and really to the first church in Jerusalem. Um, So we're going to pick up in Acts chapter uh, 2, verse 40, and run through the end of the chapter um, but, but this is such a, it's, it's a very important um, topic because it begins to open up for us, what is church? What does church look like? What does church do? How do you define church? How does the Bible define church? And, you know, I think if we look at this, we can actually get in these few seven or eight verses, we can get a powerful sort of a full-orbed perspective of what church is from God's perspective. Um, So that is really where we're moving. Um, I'd even encourage us as we're moving into Acts 2 to bear in mind Hebrews uh, 4.12. So Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, this would be the word, in the beginning was the word, the Bible, uh, the person of Jesus. Um, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God, both meaning the Bible and the person of Jesus, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, literal joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes and intentions of the human heart. So it is, it's really with that, um, underneath the weight of what it means to be church, that I want to actually pass um, not only our church, Saltbox, but the American idea or our idea of what church is through the sieve of Scripture. Uh, so a sieve is like if we were making spaghetti and you were over at our house for dinner and we're boiling noodles, we would dump the noodles once the spaghetti noodles were soft um, through a sieve to drain out the water and retain um, what we were going to eat, the noodles. Uh, so the same principle here this morning is we're going to actually pass our church, Saltbox, through and even the church through the sieve of the word to go what is what is truly of God and what becomes sort of external things that build up around the church. So, so how does God define church? What is church really um, based on the scripture? So I think there's no better place to look at the launch of the New Testament church than right after Pentecost. So quick review. Uh, What has just happened is you've got a group of 120 believers who are hiding in an upper room, terrified for their life. Doors are locked. They're scared that that Pilate and the Romans or Herod or the Jews are going to come and drag them off and crucify them like they crucified their Jesus. So there's lots of fear. They're praying. They're waiting for the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. They're going down to the temple at the times of prayer, most likely three times a day. And the way I 
I read Acts is the, those, that group of New Testament believers went down to the temple, and while they were actually in the temple, so in a public place on a holy holiday sort of um, for the Jews, so there would have been multiple, probably 2.5 million Jews gathered in the city of Jerusalem. So you have this 120 group of believers um, who are sitting at the temple, worshiping God and praying. You've got two and a half million people gathered around the city of Jerusalem, in the city, and at the temple um, for this, this holy um, day. And all of a sudden, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit shows up in the temple <sighs> through like wind that blows through, and then these tongues of fire that appear over the heads of each of the 120 New Testament believers. And then what erupts and happens is people begin to speak in all sorts of different languages from around the world all at the same time. And a huge crowd now begins to gather because you have this fierce wind that is blown or is blowing. You've got tongues of fire that have appeared over the head of each of these um, believers. And now you've got uh, over 100, maybe several hundred people who are speaking in different languages all at the same time. Um, so there's, it's this real like phenomenon that is happening. It's a supernatural event. And so thousands of people that are, that are gathered in, in the city of Jerusalem for this holy day are now um, circling up around to see what this big commotion is. And suddenly the apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the first sermon uh, really to the first portion or first part of the gathering New Testament church. And it says 3,000 people at the end. It's verse, um, I think it's verse 41 of Acts chapter 2. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. So all of a sudden you have this New Testament church that goes from 120 to 3,120. And so overnight you've got this um, Christian movement, this Jesus movement, these Jesus followers who have um, forsaken Judaism or at least the Old Testament version of it and embraced Messiah Jesus and their own Jesus journey. So the very next few passages or verses are absolutely um, cataclysmic for how we would define fine um, church. And we get to see here, uh, there are 11 marks that are going to come out of this little passage of scripture. And I think those 11 marks would become the essence of what Jesus intended the New Testament church to be. Now, uh, today, 2023, um, as we stand here, we are an extension of both the New Testament church and the living, breathing body of Christ. So for us to take a look, uh, an authentic look, go back to the word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Um, so taking the word of God and then passing the very essence and fabric of our church and even the capital C church um, through the sieve of scriptures, I think is essential. And one of the things that will do is keep us humble and dependent upon the Lord Jesus um, to continue to shape and form our church, lest it becomes my church or your church. It is his church, and we are merely passing through. So before we um, continue in the text, here's what I would like to do. Um, there's, a, there's a movie um, that, that I like from the 1980s. I was born the end of 1980. Um, so those of you who were born in the 80s, I'm going to date myself, <coughs> but you will uh, resonate probably powerfully uh, with this. Um, but there's a movie called Back to the Future One. And uh, there's a guy in Back to the Future One 
and his name is Marty McFly, and this is the very end of the movie, um, and Doc uh, um, Brown, I think his name is Dr. Emmett Brown, he's got this wild hair. Um, if you didn't know me 20 years ago, I actually um, mimicked my hair after Dr. Emmett Brown, believe it or not. Um, but anyway, Dr. Emmett Brown comes screeching uh, back into the past from the future in this silver DeLorean. So he screeches up, pulls up into the driveway, and then Marty McFly and I think his girlfriend Jennifer are there. And Dr. Emmett Brown has Marty and his girlfriend Jennifer get into the DeLorean and Doc slams it into reverse, gets out on the road and he has to get the DeLorean up to 88 miles an hour for it to time travel into the future. And uh, Marty looks at Doc and says, Doc, you've got to back up. We don't have enough road to get to 88 miles an hour. And Doc very confidently just looks forward and he has these cool old school glasses on and he goes, roads, where we're going, we don't need roads. And he flicks his glasses down and you see the DeLorean drive and lift off and begin to hover like an airplane and then they go into the future and then also into the past. So what I wanna do is I wanna pause here for a quick moment and I wanna take you into some of the high points of church history, simply for the point of illustrating that what a church looks like, sounds like externally is not what defines church. So let's just go back in history, back uh, to the past so that we can go into sort of the future of what God is doing and what are the 11 marks of the New Testament church, both right after Pentecost, and then today as we live out the life of the church on earth. So uh, let's look back in history. In the 1500s, there was a guy named uh, Martin Luther. He was a Catholic um, priest, and at that point, um, the, church, the, the Bible could not be read or interpreted um, by common people. They, they couldn't even read it. It was in a different language. And uh, there was even things going on where, where people would pay um, a priest's um, and, and they would pronounce forgiveness because of the money paid in a, in a system called indulgences. And all of a sudden, what Martin Luther proposes is a reformation back to the essence and the fabric um, of the Bible. So what's, what's fascinating is in this moment, there's a deviation. So people are used to big churches, a language and the Bible being read in a language they don't understand. They go for very formal gatherings and prayer type services and readings. Um, and then all of a sudden, Martin Luther begins to propose that the Bible should be in a language people understand. It's about grace alone and faith alone and Jesus alone. It's not about our works. Um, so he, he proposes this reforming and all of a sudden societies and a, and a shift or a reforming um, happens in a branch of the church. And as that branch breaks off of the larger Catholic church, the Catholic church judges this break off branch as wrong, as not of God, and in some cases as of the devil. Now, the question for us today is, did God use that reformation? Did God use Martin Luther? Um, and was God actually working in and through that schism or that breakoff? And the answer from history is absolutely yes. But people couldn't understand, didn't understand, and rejected the shift because it didn't fit their paradigm or their form or preconceived idea or judgment about what church should look like. So let's fast forward again into the future. 1700s, there's a guy named Pastor George Whitfield, 
He's a powerful evangelist in the United Kingdom. He also goes to the East Coast, the colonies of the United States of America. He preaches, um, and it, it hits this point where he's so controversial that the high steeple churches and the, the cathedral churches no longer let George preach in their pulpits. And so George is dejected, he's depressed, he ta- he, he's like, what do I do? I guess my ministry is over. And in that moment, he's sitting on a hill watching hundreds of miners, literally mining, walking to, on their way to work to go to their, their mines. And he just stands up and he begins to preach. And suddenly crowds of hundreds and, and eventually crowds of thousands begin to gather around George Whitfield as he just breaks open the Bible and preaches in very passionate, um, uh, sim- but also very simple ways. And this huge movement begins. There's a great awakening in both the United Kingdom um, and in the American colonies. And it, but as this great awakening that God is clearly using is happening, there is a, there's judgment that is being made in the more formal uh, cathedral-like churches that this movement is not of God, not good, and often of the devil. So let's fast forward again. And, and, and as we fast forward and, and look, what you have to begin to wrestle with is, okay, if God is clearly working in George Whitfield, if God is clearly working in Martin Luther, then the way humans often define church or our preconceived notions about what church is are often inaccurate. Let's continue. In the 1700s, there was another guy named John Wesley. He left the organized church, and he actually saw the need for discipleship. And men and women and children and families living life closer together, being discipled, getting into the word, worshiping together. And so what Wesley does is he launches dozens and dozens and dozens of these little societies that are like little churches. And you could even argue that he was the father of the multi-campus movement, because he had, um, or, or the house church movement, probably both. But he had dozens and dozens and dozens of these little communities or little churches all over the place, and he would ride his horse and go from place to place and preach at all these different churches or societies. And yet, while that is happening, he was taking unordained, uneducated um, lay people, and he was taking both men and super controversial, he was taking women and putting them, installing them and ordaining them under his own new you know, means of ordination um, as the leaders of these little communities. And as you can imagine, Uh, did the existing church look at what John did and say, it's bad, it's not of God, in fact, it's of the devil. Now, as we look back, we know that God used John Wesley powerfully. It was part of, again, the Great Awakenings. Fast forward again a few years, 1850s now, a guy named Charles Spurgeon. He's at a church in London. He's even called now the king of preachers. And his church has swollen so big um, that he has had to leave any existing church cathedral, and he's gone to um, a music center. So literally the Spurry Garden Music Hall that'll seat about 10,000 people. And all of a sudden, he has taken church out of the cathedral context, out of the pulpit context, and he's now preaching. In, in a more secular um, facility that, that'll hold all the people. And again, what does the existing church say? It's bad. It doesn't reflect the heart of God. In fact, it's of 
the devil. And yet God uses it. So if, if the church is not about the building you're in or the steeple you're under, um, if the church is not about whether you're in a small society that meets out in the outskirts of London and in the countryside of England, if the church isn't about um, a big cathedral back to Martin Luther um, or the purchasing of indulgences, so, so if the church is not what it appears necessarily externally, then the church must be something more. And the question we have to begin to wrestle with is, what is that more? What is the church biblically? And then are we actually being the church. Let's go forward a few more years. Here in America in the 1970s and 1980s, church was characterized by high steeples. If we went to a church, we would come to a place with a high steeple. Most of the men at that point would be wearing a tie and a suit. Most of the women would be wearing some type of dress. And uh, as you um, would stand for worship, you would pull a hardback book from the back of the pew you were sitting in, not the chair uh, you were sitting in, but from the pew, um, a wood, big wooden bench, if you don't know what that is, and people would open this hymnal and you would sing and, and recite sort of like, uh, I don't know, kind of choir-like music, um, reading right out of a hymnal. And for many people, um, that was church, and any deviation from that was considered bad, um, not of God and even of the devil. So what happened in the late, um, really late 80s, but also probably mid 90s, and then certainly by 95 to 2000, is this new brand of church um, launches. And so from 1995-ish, let's say, to about 2020, church all of a sudden leaves high steeples. They leave and, and depart the idea of hymnals. They depart the idea of sitting in, in relative silence in suits and ties um, and dresses. And all of a sudden, church is put into big blacked out auditoriums and pastors um, think they need to uh, wear, you know, cool tennis shoes and often have tattoos. And suddenly um, speaking becomes a little bit more motivational, a little bit more emotionally engaging. And the music is rock and roll. And there's this really neat movement um, that happens in that time. Now, as you may know, because you lived through it, most of or many of the high steeple churches looked at this new church movement and went, it's bad. It doesn't honor God. And it could be of the devil. And yet we know that God has used blacked out auditoriums, great music, tennis shoes, tattoos. He has worked in and through it as part of the larger church. So let's, let's pause there a second before we look at these 11 marks actually in scripture. And let's say, if you and I, in this day and age, 2023, if we uh, would look at a high steeple church that still preaches in a suit and tie or opens a, a hymnal, and we would judge that God, uh, God's presence could not be there, his favor and grace could not rest on that, and that's in, in essence not a real church, I would call you to repent. Similarly, if you would look at a church that is blacked out and people wear um, tennis shoes and the music's cool and there's lots of tattoos and you would judge that as God can't use that, his presence is not there, um, certainly that can't be real church, then I would urge and also call you to repent. If you're not used to the repent word, it just means change your heart and mind um, and align it with that of the Lord Jesus. Ask God to forgive you for the judgment in your heart and give you love for that church or style of churches. Now, let's flip the coin. 
You also cannot say, because the risk is if you're in a church that does a blacked out auditorium and fog and great music and sneakers and tattoos, the risk is that you judge any other church that's not doing it like you as insufficient, not full of God, um, and, and really therefore not church. The same thing's true in a high steeple church. You can judge people outside of that. So here's where we're coming down to. If we can't call church based on the kind of music or based on the clothes or based on whether they meet indoors or outdoors, whether they meet under a steeple or whether they meet in a blacked out auditorium, whether there's stained glass windows and hymns or whether there is super casual jean jackets and, you know, tennies. If we can't judge church by any of those um, more human or external things because we don't know if the, if the presence and power of God is working in and through um, that, that person or persons or church or, or even era of time, then how and what is church? I'm glad you asked. Let's go to the scriptures. And I'll even pray before we open the scriptures this morning. Lord, would you lead us and would you give us eyes to see what the church is? And Father, I ask that you would even break our human paradigm of what it means to be church. Father, where we've been shallow and calloused and judgmental to people who do church differently than us, would you allow us to see with the eyes of your spirit? Would you give us a new paradigm like Doc's glasses and allow us to see uh, with your eyes what are the essences or what are the marks of a true New Testament community of believers that we call church? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, here we go. <sighs> Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves, now reminder, that's the 3,000 that have just come to Christ. That's also the 120 believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Okay, so the first thing, and um, if you want to, there's a fill-in-the-blank thing on our YouTube channel, or you may have gotten it at the door as you came in this morning, um, but you may uh, take that and fill this in as we go along. We're looking at the 11 marks of the New Testament church. So verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So what are the apostles' teaching? Well, the New Testament didn't exist yet. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John was just beginning to form in the hearts and minds of the disciples that they had not been written. The New Testament epistles hadn't been written because the apostle Paul hadn't even come to Jesus yet. He was still a Pharisee out persecuting the church as it, as it grew or would, would become a Pharisee that would persecute the church. So um, the apostles are teaching the Old Testament, and maybe you don't know this, but Jesus is in all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. And so they're teaching and they're proving that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and the Savior of the world by way of the Old Testament. So the first thing, what is the, what is the first mark of a New Testament church is it's a word church. And I would say a step beyond that, it's a learning church, a teachable church. Um, they are, they are um, looking for, uh, they are hungry for the knowledge, the word, the person, and, and the presence of God. So number one, they're a word church. They're a teachable word church. And, uh, you know, when I look for an employee, whether it's in uh, our, our business or whether it's even in the church, I will take a person. I will always choose a person who is teachable over um, a person who is a perceived expert with an attitude. Teachability, um, a hungry heart to learn or be a word church um, is absolutely essential. So number one, it was a word church. Number two, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to 
fellowship. Okay, so fellowship. Fellowship is relationship. First relationship with God, um, so our, our vertical sort of relationship with him. And then secondly, fellowship is relationship with those around us, one another. So the second thing I would say, the second mark of a New Testament church is it's relational. Relational with God and relational with people. Okay, let's keep going. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, the breaking of bread. Two things come to mind here, I think are very important, is breaking of bread is a, it's a, um, referring to, to, to sort of two parts. Number one, it's referring to the Lord's Supper. It's referring to communion. So when Jesus sat in that upper room and he broke the bread, and he would have poured wine, we use grape juice um, in our church, but he would have poured wine, and he, he um, said that that was his body and blood of the new covenant. So number, what, what, you, what you see is in this um, relational church, they're breaking bread together, sharing the Lord's Supper together, but they are also um, having meals together. You know, they are literally breaking bread, eating breakfasts or lunches or dinners together. They are in community. And you know what's even interesting? One of the things that I love to do, and I would encourage even you in your small group or us in our small groups, is when you're gathered with other believers and you're breaking bread, you're eating a meal together, it is appropriate for us, if Jesus is in you, and if you're in Jesus, there is a priesthood, and Hebrews talks about that, of all believers, and you can actually look around at your group of friends or family members and pause at the end of a meal, this is very traditional for the New Testament church, and actually um, read uh, the passage in Corinthians um, about uh, Jesus breaking bread and serve communion or share the Lord's Supper with the people you're eating with. That would be biblical. And some of you might think, well, I can't serve communion because I'm not a pastor. And maybe that's true in a formal organizational setting, but in the private setting of a small group or your home, um, if Jesus is in you and if you're in Jesus, then represent him and serve communion. Break bread, literally eat together, but then also break the bread of Christ, take the Lord's Supper together. So number one, they're a word church. Number two, they're a, a relational church. Number three comes right out of this same verse. They've devoted themselves um, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So the third thing we see is that they are a praying church. And I would say indicative of this without going too deep into it, this means that they are a faith-filled church. Um, it would also mean that they're a fasting church. So they are fasting and praying. So the emphasis isn't as much on the style of worship or what's happening or where they're gathered, but you get this like sort of pious internal focus on their hearts before the Lord Jesus. They're praying together. They're fasting together. They're seeking after the heart of God. So number three, they're a praying church. Uh, number four, let's keep reading. Um, in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So the fourth thing I would say is that they are an awe-filled church. You know, I'm a, um, I grew up uh, here in the Wilmington area um, surfing and skateboarding, and so we would always say, awesome, dude. That is awesome. That is so cool. And if you came out of even California in the 70s and, you know, vans, tennis shoes and skateboards and surf culture, that was a word that went from, you know, kind of an obscure word in the English language to the front center uh, movement of the young kind of hippies and the cool and the skaters and the surfers. But it was fascinating because I have a friend um, who not too long ago looked at me and he said, I will never use the word awesome except as it pertains to 
the creator God, the one true God, King Jesus. And I was gripped by that because this is a, this, what he's saying is he has a holy fear, a reverential fear of God. And what I see so clearly is they are a church that lives in awe of God and in awe of the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. So, you know, I think something that has been lost a little bit in our current cultural view of church with cool tennies and tattoos and blacked out auditoriums is a holy fear of God, a reverential fear of God, and a, even a revelation of the glory of God. And one of the things that I see that are a, is a mark, in fact, the fourth mark of the New Testament church is that they are an awe-filled church, which creates capacity inside of them to actually house and host the glory of God. Let's keep reading. Um, Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Okay, the fifth thing, they're a spirit church. I I don't think we can get away from the reality that God is supernatural. He supersedes our natural human world, and he longs for the kingdom of heaven to break forth into the natural world so that the supernatural, larger, unseen reality would break forth into our human uh, seen reality. So church is supernatural. That means we have an obligation, biblically, I believe, to pray for healing, to pray that God would speak to us, to pray for signs and wonders and miracles. And I don't think you can park or build your church around that one thing only. I think that would go into actual doctrinal error. But I think you have to acknowledge, number five, that one of the marks of this New Testament church is they are a spirit church. They're a magnified church, um, and there are signs and wonders happening. Let's keep reading. Verse 44, um, all the believers were together and held everything in common. So I think what I, I get, and let's go ahead and read 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So number six, the New Testament, uh, the sixth mark of a New Testament church is there a caring and a sharing church. So what begins to come through the scriptures here is this idea of radical generosity. So it's not simply, um, in fact, a lot of New Testament believers uh, balk at the idea of tithing. And I actually agree with them. And when I read this, I see that God expects us to give much more. 10% is just kind of a minimum benchmark. And I don't mean that to be condemning. If you don't give to the church right now, um, you need to start biblically if you're in Jesus and he's in you. But if you can only give 1% or 3% or 5%, start and be faithful and be consistent and let that grow over time. But the New Testament church, a mark of it, is there a caring and sharing church? There's radical generosity. They're taking care of those in need. So let's, let's ask a, a tough question here that, that comes from below the surface. Does that mean that we as believers need to sell everything and live in community? You know, should we have a ch- as a church go buy a thousand acres somewhere and have everybody come and all live in communal, you know, style and sell everything and we have one big money pot? Absolutely not. Now, pause that thought. In this day and time, they're under the harsh rule of Rome, they're under the harsh rule of Herod. Was it appropriate that they would live like that? Yes. 
if here in America it ever comes that we're under a harsh rule that is reminiscent of Rome or reminiscent of Herod, and we're in danger for our lives, we don't have livelihoods, we don't have enough to eat, our homes are being taken over and destroyed, our businesses are being taken over and destroyed, would it then be appropriate that we would embrace again a communal style of living? Absolutely. In the meantime, if we decide to be communal in our current culture, it would be nothing short of weird. But don't miss the point here. The, the point is that, that we would be a church that is caring and sharing, radically um, generous. And, you know, if you really open it a little bit deeper, you get an idea of the, a universal truth that emerges from Scripture um, versus a, uh, a specific truth that emerges or a situational truth that emerges from Scripture. So communal living, that is a situational truth that emerges from Scripture. The larger universal truth is radical generosity, sharing, caring, giving to those in need, helping people. Okay, uh, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Verse 45, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Verse 46, every day... They continued to meet together in the temple courts. Okay, so how do they meet? In the temple courts. So they're meeting publicly. They're meeting corporately. They're gathering in huge numbers. Remember, there's 3,120 of them. So they're coming together as a corporate worship celebration. But continue on in that verse. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So there's, a, there's, a, there's two things. So number seven, if you're filling in um, your, your, the worksheet that we gave you, the New Testament church is a church that met corporately and in homes. And I would actually say, that there's a little bit of doctrinal error that is emerging in, in the American idea of church right now because you cannot call church just big church. You know, just corporate gathering is not enough to define um, a, a, a group as church. Similarly, meeting as a house church or a small church is not enough to define um, uh, that group as church. So, so biblically, doctrinally, theologically, church happens both in homes, breaking of bread, eating meals together, taking the Lord's Supper together, and in large group communal celebration. So it's very clear that this is a church that meets both corporately and in smaller groups in homes. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising uh, God, um, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So, number eight, uh, we're taking it right there out of verse 47, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Number eight, the eighth mark of the New Testament church is that it was a worshiping church. This was a church that came together. And I think there's a very clear delineation here because worship is not dependent on a guitar or a piano or even an organ or a hymn book. Worship is not simply singing. Um, worship is not just words on a screen and a group gathering all faced in one direction singing. That, that's not. Worship is actually an attitude. It's a heart posture. It's a surrenderedness of spirit. And worship is day by day, moment by moment, practicing the presence of Jesus, worshiping him, 
giving him glory, giving him praise, giving him adoration, and a corporate church gathering, just like a home church gathering, but a corporate church gathering is, should be the coming together of believers who are now overflowing together and unified in worship, unified in praise. And that can happen in a corporate gathering. That can also happen um, in a home, in a small group gathering. But the eighth thing is this, is a worshiping church. The ninth thing emerges right from that verse 47. They're enjoying the favor of all the people and the Lord. And that's all the people. So that's not just the 3,120. That's the people of Jerusalem. That's the people in the countryside. So the ninth mark of the New Testament church is that they are a joy-filled church. I believe, and even as you look at the Greek here, that they're actually a happy church. They're a likable church. The the church in this day and age didn't have to do much marketing. They didn't have to tell people out there to come on in here. Because there was such power um, that was happening and being demonstrated in signs and wonders, because um, people's lives were being transformed, because there was such joy, there was such happiness, um, there was the infilling power of the Spirit happening in their midst, people couldn't help but take notice, and therefore they're coming in by the droves. The churches, it says at the end of this, that, um, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you, you know from that text, it goes from 120 um, to 3,120, and then the numbers are just ticking upward, um, you know, 3,200, 3,300, 3,400, 3,500. There's a, there's a growing, swelling <clears throat> um, movement of the Spirit of God in people because this is a joy-filled church. The tenth thing that emerges to me um, out of this is they're praising God, they're enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. The tenth thing is this is a church that is evangelizing and multiplying. So this is a growing church. And you'd have to flip that and go, Michael, if a church isn't growing, if a church isn't seeing people come to Jesus, if a church isn't seeing people discipled in their Christian journey, would they be outside of the realm on that mark? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We have to define ourselves by people are coming to faith in Christ, people are surrendering their lives to him, people are being baptized, people are being saved, and people are being discipled and learning to walk more maturely and fully with uh, the Lord Jesus. And then the last thing, the 11th mark um, that I would say here, it doesn't emerge exactly from this text, but if you go on to read Acts 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then the beginning of 8, it emerges so clearly. And I want to read just Acts chapter 8, um, verses 1 through 4. And here's what it says. And Saul approved of their killing him. That's a guy named Stephen. They stoned him to death. And then it says, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. So now this is a church of perhaps 4,000. We don't know exactly, 5,000. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Here's what I want you to see. This is the 11th mark, um, and this is more implicit in the, the larger text instead of explicitly being said in the text we read this morning. But it is the 11th mark is the New Testament church was a suffering church. 
if I took you today to look at the Iranian church, it's, it's one of, if not the fastest growing church in the world. And when you come to, to Christ in Iran, you often lose your home, your family, you're often raped, beaten, thrown in prison, or exiled. And much of the Iranian church is actually exiled into countries like Turkey, meeting um, uh, more uh, corporately there in Turkey because there's a little bit more freedom. But in Iran, you know, they're meeting in small underground groups, very similar to the church in China. That's also happening in the church in India. So today, when we define church in America with sneakers, tattoos, blacked out rooms, um, or high steeples and hymn books, if you prefer, um, if that's the way we define church, church is radically going on in countries like Iran and China and India, in impoverished states, in states without um, educated pastors and ordained people and seminary and Bible schools and great worship um, sets, and, and yet the presence and power of God may be showing up even more powerfully because they're acting, thinking, and behaving much more like these 11 marks of the New Testament church. So let's tie this entire message together <clears throat> like this. Um, I believe that God has called us here at Saltbox and, and called the church even in America to be a full-orbed church, so a, a whole, a holistic church, and to carry each of these 11 marks. And the call, I think, for us as a church today is to pass ourselves through the sieve of the Scripture and honestly look at whether or not we are carrying those 11 marks. And if we're not, it's not, it's not condemnation. We don't beat ourselves up or go, woe is me. No, no, no. We simply humble our hearts and we go, Lord Jesus, we recognize that we're not exhibiting this mark. We are not selling in this area, would you forgive us? Would you shape us? Would you change us? Would you fill us with your presence? And would you show us some really practical ways on how we can advance that area in our church, um, in our city, in our state, on this seaboard? So the call for us as Saltbox is to take up our place, you and I, and embrace that we are called to, to walk in these 11 marks. We are called as a church to exemplify these 11 marks. And then let's be a church that rises up and, and risks believing God at face value that we could be a church where, where uh, people are added to our number daily, where people are experiencing coming to faith and salvation in Jesus, where people are experiencing um, being discipled, raised up to health and life with Christ, and that we would be a vibrant community that could affect communities and churches well beyond our walls. As you go from this place today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, please get in touch with us. You can email us. I'm Michael at saltboxchurch.com. You can go via our website. You can go via our YouTube channel. But we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you and lead you um, into uh, a saving relationship with him. Um, we would also love if you want to join our community of believers as we attempt to become whole in terms of our understanding of what it means to be a New Testament church and carry these 11 marks. Let me pray for us today as we close. Lord Jesus, I pray for everyone who's listening online, on our podcast, on our YouTube, in, in our live service, um, or in arrears. Lord, I pray that you would meet them powerfully. And Father, I pray that all who hear this would make decisive decisions in their hearts to be a carrier of your person and presence so that you would shift us, change us, fill us, and shape us so that we carry these 11 marks of what it means 
to be a New Testament church. And Father, I pray that you would anoint this church at this time with your presence, with your grace, and with your power to demonstrate and be a New Testament uh, body of believers. Lord, I pray for anyone who's online um, who is, uh, who's never surrendered their life to you. And in fact, if, if that's you and you're in this room or if you're online watching, um, I'm gonna lead you through a prayer. And if you wanna pray this, there's no magic words, but it's the simple declaration of surrendering your heart and life to him. And pray with me if, if you wanna give your life to this King Jesus today. Lord Jesus, I pray uh, that you would come into my heart. I recognize that I'm a sinner. I recognize that I have fallen short of what you've called me to. I recognize that I can't perform or earn my way to you. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come into my heart, that you would forgive me, that you would change me, and that you would redeem me. Father, I pray that you would live there, and I acknowledge that you are God, creator God, Lord of heaven and earth. And I pray that as you come and dwell within me, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, and you would teach me to walk with you, to abide in your presence, and to affect the people around me with the life and joy and hope and peace of the gospel of Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, get in touch with us. We'd love to give you a Bible and help you, encourage you in your journey. My email address is michael at saltboxchurch.com. We love you and pray that the grace and favor of the Lord Jesus would rest upon you and shine upon you as you go from this place. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.